you have a copy of God's Word, and I hope you do, please open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. We're going to be, or I'm going to be starting an exposition of the book of Hebrews. I have a long way to go. Well, we'll have some fun with it. So, I made the mistake of, um, I, I was that kid who was enjoying his cheesecake too much, and so I took too much of a bite this week. So your bulletin says one through four. We're just going to stop at um, one and two and a half. So I'll, I'll tell you guys where we stop there. Um, just for some introductory information, um, it's important to know that the book of Hebrews is a combination of a few things. It's a hybrid of a sermon and of an address and of a letter. If you look at the first few verses, there isn't any introductory remarks, but at the end it seems to have the tail end of one of our epistles. And so it's a little bit of a hybrid sermon, address, and letter. One of the biggest mysteries is that we don't necessarily know who wrote it. So Cliff very much would tell you Paul wrote it, and he told me all week that Paul wrote it. Um, I came into the office thinking it was Apollos, and I was very much rebuked by that. But um, we just have a few options for who wrote it. Barnabas is an option, um, also Luke. But Cliff said to preach it as Paul's letter. We, we don't really know, because there's no introductory mark um, about who wrote it like we normally see in all of the letters. This isn't necessarily a problem because it's clear that in the early church that they accepted it and that it was widely spread. And so we do not have any issues with it being in our Bibles. So I will be referring to the author of the book of Hebrews as the author of the book of Hebrews. So it'll be a good time. By the second century, though, the letter was circulating around with a, a title of To the Hebrews. And if you look down quickly in the first verse, it says, um, to, the author refers to the fathers, who we understand as the Jewish fathers and to, and to the patriarchs, to the nation of Israel. And so if these were the fathers, we can then understand that the author is writing to a group of Christian converts from Judaism, those who had heard the gospel and repented. Now, why was it written? An important question for us this evening. It seems like the audience... This, Christ, this group of Christian Jews was struggling with persecution because of their allegiance to Christ. We see in Hebrews 10, 33 through 34, that Christians are being thrown into prison and losing their property because of their faith. I was even looking over this earlier, and at the end, there's a comment about Timothy being released from prison. Timothy, who we know by Paul. And so as the Christian gospel began to spread throughout the empire, the Roman governments started to come against them and local church leaders. They would lose property, they would lose jobs, social status, and some of them lost their lives. So as Christians started to feel this, this persecution, this heat from the world, at the same time, those from Jewish backgrounds would start to feel this pull or this tug. They would start to feel this draw back into Judaism. Judaism was accepted in the Roman Empire because they usually kept to themselves and they were a little feisty to deal with. But if they could just revert back, if they could go back to their Jewish faith, then all the persecution and suffering they experienced would end. The physical, the social, financial, all would be done. If they just reinterpreted the Old Testament, if they just tweaked this here or that, they could just slide back into Judaism and all the person, persecution would end. I think that for us coming to this text, I think we can all understand a little bit of what that feels like. And if we're honest with ourselves, when us as Christians, as we start to walk through various trials because of being Christians, 
It's very easy and tempting for us to, to slide back or to feel that tug into the lives which we once lived. This can look like a lot of different things. This can look like ministries in trouble, churches fighting, or uncertainty in life. Whenever you have that physical or emotional suffering, whenever there's relationships or marriages in trouble, in the face of these things, when our circumstances start to challenge our faith, we feel that tug, right? But we have to go where the author of the book of Hebrews goes first. Because where he takes his readers, there he also takes us. The author of Hebrews harps upon the fact that even when everything might be falling apart around you, when you're struggling, none of that can change one of the most important grounding principles of our faith. And that is this. God has spoken. Please follow along with me as I read. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken. Do you believe that? As we wrestle with this text for the evening, there's one question I want you to think about. What is the significance of of the word of God in your life? What place does it hold in your heart? I think this is a really important question because there's a sense in which, in which the whole foundation of our Christian life is built upon how you answer that question. And even if you answer that question with an affirmative that the word of God is central to my life, it's also about then how you live in light of that. I think most people in this room, if you're here on a Sunday evening, would say God's word holds a priority. But do you believe also functionally? One of, the one of the foundational pillars of the Christian faith is that God has spoken to us, that he's given us his word. And you know, for us to believe the gospel, the gospel is a word from God. And so if we struggle to believe God's word, foundation to us hearing the gospel and believing it is the fact that it is a word from God. One of the reasons why this question is also really important is that we have a plethora of words coming at us today. If there's one thing I probably could define the 21st century, it is word overload. Social media, news, text messages, this, that, those links that try and grab your attention when you're just trying to look at something simple. We are obsessed with words, giving words, having words come to us. And there are more words and voices trying to speak into our lives than ever before. So what words would you say in your life are the most formative? What do you take in? Is it Fox News? Is it your Facebook? Twitter? For the younger guys? Is it your gossiping group? Or is it God's word? What, word? what words do you listen to the most? What words form your opinions? Are they the words of the world? Or are they the words of God? In the overflow of words, though, as it literally rains upon us, it's very easy for us to view all words as the same, right? So we even then say that God's word, we might not say this, but functionally, God's word is just another one of the words in our life. Or even in the face of trials, God's word falls and other words rise above it. If you naturally just think about trials in your life, when you just interpret the world around you, even think about this week, 
When you interpret experiences you're happening, that are happening to you, you digest them as truth claims. And when there's trials coming into your life, you're naturally going to interpret your life around you into claims. And they're going to challenge God's word naturally. I know God's word says X, but this is happening to me. I know God says he loves me and cares for me and all my days are numbered by him, but I have this illness or this struggle or this temptation at work. You're interpreting your life into truth claims. Or I know God commands me to be honest at work, but I'm struggling to pay the bills and keep my business afloat. For you, I know there's a few kids from kids worship in here. I know God says I need to honor my father and mother, but they're treating me like X and I want that. You're interpreting the world around you. And it's honestly, it's always true in scripture that whenever trials come, then our true selves are revealed. You trust God's, your trust of God's words is not merely just a confession that you can write down on a piece of paper, but it's how you live when trials come. Where do you go for answers? Where is your comfort? Where is your trust? But knowing that this is a common temptation for all people, I think it's really interesting that the author of Hebrews goes first to the fact that God has spoken to us. Here's the main idea I think that the author of Hebrews would want us to walk away with. It is this, in the face of all the voices that try to speak into your lives and all of the trials you face, none of these can overcome the truth that God has spoken directly, completely, and personally to you. I'm going to read that again. In the face of all the voices trying to speak into your life and all the trials that you might face, none of these can overcome the truth that God has spoken to you directly completely and personally. In the overflow of all of the words that bombard us every day, there is only one word which is ultimately authoritative, isn't there? And that is the word which comes from God. The beginning of truth from God, of all of Christianity, of us even knowing the gospel, our faith is the fact that God has first spoken to us. He has spoken and he initiates this conversation with humanity, with you and with me. Whenever we see places in scripture where God is speaking to us, it's always important to stop and make a crucial point. We never deserve God's word. It is always grace. And also, apart from God speaking to us, we would not know anything about him. Why do you know anything about God? Why do you know anything about yourself as it it relates to you being body and soul? How do you know the gospel? How do you know how God wants you to live? Because God has spoken. God is the self-revealing one. You would not know God or how he wants you to live or why he puts you in the world if he did not speak to you through his word. But beginning at, at, at this verse, I want to start with the natural question that arises. What does it mean in our verse, if you look down at it real quick, that God has spoken to us by his son? So in Jesus, the New Testament says, we see God in the flesh, right? You guys can probably just have a few places in your mind that that comes in. So Jesus is the supreme form of revelation from God because as Emmanuel, he reveals the Father to us, right? You can go to John 1.18 for this. Whenever we see Jesus in scripture, we see the Father, John 14.9. 
Jesus is the exact imprint, like a stamp that he'll later say in this chapter, of God. In the same way that a stamp will leave its complete mark, so is Jesus the exact imprint of the Father. So when Jesus came into the world, God is revealing himself to us in the person of Christ. Now this is important because it can be true that God has spoken to us without us actually seeing Jesus and hearing his words. How? Because the author of Hebrews and the audience here weren't actually the first witnesses. They were not eyewitnesses to Jesus' ministry and message. They were secondhand recipients of this. You can see this in Hebrews 2-3 on the next page. I'll just read it real quick. It was declared to first by the Lord, and then it was attested to us by those who heard. And so they did not see Jesus, but they only heard his good news and believed his message. Yet still the author can say that he has spoken to them. How? Because the words which they heard, the testimony concerning Jesus, and what the apostles spoke was a message concerning Jesus. We see Christ in the Gospels and in the New Testament, right? And so once you look at the New Testament's witness to Christ and to the Word, we come to even see that all of Scripture is a word concerning Christ. Once we know Jesus, once we know who He is as God and man, we see Him in all of Scripture too. And the writings of the apostles and all the prophets who have the Holy Spirit are writing down the message of Christ in the gospel to us. Jesus is the word of God, right? John 1.1. 1, 1. The Holy Spirit has only spoken what comes from the Son. That's in all of the New and Old Testament. So, quick question for you. If, if Jesus, if all the words of Scripture is a word to us from Jesus, then it's kind of funny sometimes. I guess not really a question. I, I kind of ruined it, but... It's kind of funny how sometimes, and this isn't a negative thing, if your Bible has read words concerning Jesus' words, it's helpful to see explicitly what he said. There's also a sense in which every word that comes from the Bible is a word from Jesus to us. So that's what, when we come to this and the passage says, Jesus has spoken to us, or God has spoken to us through Jesus, all of the Bible is this witness to us about Jesus. So God has spoken through his son, but yet if you go through the Bible, right, he's speaking to us differently at different parts. And so he didn't, he intentionally, God intentionally spoke different words to his people at different times. You have the Old Testament, you have a word to Abraham, a word to Noah, and then a word to Moses, all these different people, and then you get to us. That seems to be the main difference that he's trying to draw in this passage. Take a look at it real quick. The main difference that the author of Hebrews is trying to pull out is that there's a difference between what God spoke to the people of Israel and then what he has spoken to the early church and what he has spoken to us today. So we're going to look at three ways real quick in which God's revelation to us in Christ is greater than that of the nation of Israel. Now, that might not seem like that big of a deal, but in doing this, it's going to show us why we can have complete confidence in God's word and faith in God. So here are the three points. God's word to us is direct, it is complete, and it is personal. Direct, complete, and personal. So point one, we persevere, or we have confidence, knowing that God has spoken to us directly. 
And the first point seems to be drawn from there are two audiences in this passage. Take a look at it real quick. He says that God, for long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers. There's one audience. But then in these last days, he has spoken to us. I already said this. When he says the fathers, he's talking about nation of Israel are the fathers of the Jewish audience, right? That's pretty clear. So God's revelation in the Old Testament was in a sense limited because it was directed to the people of Israel. That's tracking with me? Good. But at, and then the contrast is, is that God spoke to the nation of Israel and now he has spoken to us. He has spoken to us being the original audience, but also us as in all people in all places to me and to you. This is a dynamic that's different between the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? Old Testament towards people of Israel, the preaching of the gospel is to all people. I think we see this in a few places in the New Testament. If you go to the beginning of the gospel of Luke, what does the angel say to the shepherds? Fear not, uh, big lights, fear not, for behold, I bring to you shepherds great news of joy that will be for all people, Luke 10 2.10. Also here, Paul at Lystra, as he's rebuking Gentiles because they show up, they do all these miraculous things. Oh, they're gods. No, they're not. And so what does Paul say to the people there? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you, Gentiles, good news, that you should turn from the vain things to the living God who made the heaven and the earth and the seas and all that are in them. And hear this. In the past generations, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. So if in the past, God allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, now that's not, that's not the case anymore, right? There's a message going out to all of them. What's that message? Glad you asked. Acts 17, Paul to the, to the um, Aragopolis at Athens. He says, the times of ignorance, the times when you Gentile nations didn't know what was happening to the people of Israel, God has overlooked, but now he commanded all people, and if you didn't get the all people, all people everywhere, to do what? To repent. Why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. God is going to judge all the world one day in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. Take a guess who the man who he appointed was. And he gave, and of this he has given us assurance of all this by raising him from the dead. What's Paul's message? As he's going to the Gentiles, he says, there is now a message from you. You need to repent because God has raised his son from the dead and he will judge all of the nations. How is this proven? There is still an empty tomb in Jerusalem. Now this is also is one of the reasons why missions is so important today. Because us as the church are given the task of letting the nations know that Jesus is now king over everyone. And he is calling all of them to repent and believe the gospel. This message is for all people. That's why it says in Mark 13.10 that the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. And then the end will come. But I wonder if you've thought about this point in relationship to you. God's word is a message from God, and it's for you. If tomorrow you opened your mailbox and there was a, Trump, a letter from President Trump with your name on it, how would you treat it? I've seen, well, 
I've seen some, of, some people where you get a special letter from someone and you frame it and you put, your, put it on your wall. Would you treat it like junk mail if you got it? Just kind of be like, eh, Trump sent me a letter. Probably would frame it and be like, this is the letter that Trump gave me. What if he told you to do something in that? Yeah, yeah, Donald Trump, you have a, a tax form to fill out. You got to take care of that. Or you have to do X, Y, and Z, or there'll be consequences. Would you be like, eh? Or would you treat it seriously? Well, God has spoken a word to you. And this word is directly for you. This right here is what he wants you to know from Genesis to Revelation. This is it. He has determined everything he wants you to know. But this also isn't just for you individually, is it? It's also for us corporally as a church. He wants you to know a few things. How he created the world. Why sin is in the world. How he has worked through the centuries to reveal himself to us. And how he sent his son into the world and how anyone can be brought into relationship with him. God didn't just take this word and throw it out into the universe and hope that someone paid attention to it. He has given you this word and he expects you to take it, to read it, and to obey it. Now there's some various temptations that you and I have with this though. We can be very tempted to undervalue God's word, can't we? We can just stop reading it or really start, stop taking it seriously. Stop doing your quiet times daily. You can stop coming and listening to preaching where we are here just to edify one another through the preaching of God's word. I don't just like coming up in front of a bunch of people. I didn't graduate high school and say, you know what I want to do? I want to stand in front of a bunch of people and talk all the time. But you also can draw, withdraw from Christian community where you're talking to other people about God's word. But the moment that you start to devalue and ignore God's word and give it the honor it deserves in your life, you will watch your spiritual life dwindle. If man does not live by bread alone, but every word from the mouth of God, can we be honest that there are a lot of starving people in today, in the church today, and in the world? Because once, this is really important, because God created us to be those who live by his word, and if we stop taking in God's word, it's not like that function just disappears in us, right? It's just that we start to replace it with other things. You start to take other words and elevate them to the place that God's word is supposed to be to you. And then you start setting yourself up over as God and say, these are the words that I think are important to me. And you functionally are saying, I know better for what God wants for me than God himself. Or you can have a picking and choosing, right? It's a buffet. These are the parts I like. These are the parts I don't like. If I'm at a buffet, I like the steak. I was, we were at Carrie's parents' house and they have lots of good food. I think one of my meals was like two hamburgers with bacon and a, a bratwurst. So that's just what I ate. We like to pick and choose what we like. But the Bible has its broccoli and Brussels sprouts. You know, it's not the best tasting, but it's good for you. It's what God gave you. And if this is God's word to us, we are going to be accountable for all of it, aren't we? Not just the parts that we like and the ones we want to focus on. And those, that, those things that we want to avoid. Particularly as a church, God's word is given to us to help us govern as First Baptist Church. As a church, God has given us instructions for how he wants us to operate, how he wants us to work as members, what he wants us to say and what he wants, how he wants us to function. You know, 
there's a lot of just blatantly uncomfortable topics in Scripture and commands, particularly his church, for his church, you know, things that aren't necessarily comfortable on Sunday. No one particularly enjoys calling out sin. No one likes that conversation where you go up to someone and you're concerned about them and so you want to come to them and, and point them to Scripture. You know, I, I, don't, I don't really much enjoy to looking people in the face and saying, you know, if you don't repent, there's, there's hell and judgment that lasts for eternity. But for us to brush over maybe this commandment we don't like or not to pay attention to that commandment, as his church, as a physical witness to, of God to the world, is for us to be unfaithful stewards. You're functioning, you're functionally saying that you, go to the back, back to the point personal, you know what is better for yourself, for Christ, and for yourself, for Christ's church, than Christ himself. You're functionally saying that I know what's best for me, I know what's best for the church, rather than King Jesus. I think we all know what God says about those who are unfaithful stewards. What's our stewardship of his word? What, is it, what does God honor? What does he require from us? He honors faithfulness. If God's given us this message, if it's for you and it's for me, he honors those who are faithful to it, for those who hear it and obey it. Point number one. Point number two, we see that God's revelation or word to us is complete. If you look back at this verse, there's two characteristics I want to point out. One, the sufficiency of God's word, and two, the definiteness of God's word. For sufficiency, we get this idea from looking at the times or periods. Take a look at this real quick. First, the first two words in my translation are long ago. How many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, see those two? You have long ago and you have in these last days. Those two phrases summarize all of history for us, right? You have long ago, the creation of the world, you have all of history to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, nation of Israel. All of that coming up to the point of Christ. There's also the last days. Jesus came, and then everything towards he went until he returns. Now when the author says last days, it's the word eschatos for all of you guys who like fun words like that. We get the word eschatology. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. It's it's a, it's a fun topic, but basically the study of last things. That's when you pull out your prophecy charts and you have all your fun with that. But the New Testament continually witnesses to the fact that Jesus coming and the kingdom of God starting is the beginning of the end of all things. The last days, same word here, is fulfilled in the time of the church. If you want to have some references, talk about later. Um, Acts 2.17, 1 Corinthians 10.11, and 1 Peter 1.20. So I'm not just pulling that out of, out of thin air somewhere. So we are in the last days of history. But why is that important for our text? Because in this simple phrase, God is telling us that what has come to us in Christ is all we need for right now until the end of the world. In these last days, from when Christ returns, what well, came the first time to when Christ returns, God has spoken to us by his Son. In contrast to the Old Testament, we have many times in many ways and all these things were happening to the people of Israel. He's spoken to us once. So Christ's word to us is all the revelation we're getting. And it's all that we need until the time that Christ returns. 
Or also, let's, let's have us look at the idea of definite. It's interesting because this is the only phrase that doesn't have a parallel. So, let's take a look at a verse real quick. It says, long ago, at many times and in many ways. This is defined in the Old Testament period. God spoke to the prophets in many times, many ways. There's not a parallel, though, is there in the text? What can we assume? If God... If, if, if the author of Hebrews is saying God spoke to us in many times, in many ways, he's speaking to us now in one time and in one way through his son. His revelation in the Old Testament was diverse and it was partial, but in Christ it is unitary and it is definite. When Christ came, he's fulfilling all of the Old Testament scriptures up to this point, and he completes all of it in his death and resurrection, right? And so Jesus' revelation to us is complete and it's final. Now, as another fun point, all of this makes sense if you consider the fact that whenever God works, right? Exodus, Elijah, people of Israel, uh, exile, all these things. Whenever God works covenantally, he's like, I'm going to make a covenant with you. We talked about this. Whenever that happens, there's usually revelation accompanying it, right? So think about God saves people out of Exodus, and then you have the law that comes with it. Or when, when he foretells, or think about David, right? So when there's a covenant with David, there's all these things that come along with it. We anticipate, you know, Jesus comes, what's going to come with it? Revelation from God, people writing things down that explain what's happening. And so this makes sense. For this period, until Christ returns, the Bible is this, this New Testament, it's going to complete it, and this is all that we're getting for this time. So God isn't going to pop up anywhere and give us anything else, right? This is why things like Mormonism and Islam are wrong. Are wrong. There is no more direct revelation from God. What's happening now is that we as the church have the Holy Spirit, and we're thinking about it and interpreting it and applying it to our hearts. So God has spoken to us in these last days, and this is all we're getting, Part of believing that the Bible is complete and definite is the fact that it is sufficient. It is all that we need. Hear this. It's all that we need for us to live a life pleasing to him. In the scriptures, he tells us how he wants us to live. And in every area of our life, he has words that are relevant for us, right? Now, there are some parts of our life that might be more relevant than others. And so there's a difference between a plumber taking the Bible and the difference between me taking the Bible. You know, I don't think you're going to find the Bible plumbing tips. Really? I, I, I'm thinking, I don't think there's any on top of my head. He's not going to, you're not going to get a plumbing manual from the Bible. But the Bible does talk about how to do your work well. And what does it mean for you to be a plumber to the glory of God? Now, it's more specifically for someone, maybe like a, like a pastor. I guess that was my example I used. There might be more things that he might tell me directly. But for both of us, it's sufficient. This is a really important truth for us to say that God's word is sufficient for us for this time because there are tons of things in our lives trying to challenge the relevance of God's word, isn't there? I mean, what? It's like 2,000 years. How can this old book still be relevant in my life? How can God or how can the Bible know what I need today? But what is all of this saying? If you ever have that thought, it, it's, a, it's a distrust in what God has given us for this period. Think about your life. Do you look at the Bible and view it as sufficient for you? Do you think that you need anything else? 
Be careful if you are ever reading scripture and you come to something it says and then you say, yeah, but they don't really know what I know today. Or when you look at, look at his word and there's a commandment, you're like, yeah, but we know more. We're more modern. We're more developed. We, we have more technology. What is that doing? You're challenging the authority and sufficiency of God's word in your life. What God has said to us for this period in Christ is sufficient. If we come to God's word and we struggle to find its relevance, if we, if we see a clear command that's hard to obey sometimes, the problem is never with God's word. It's really important. It's always with us. We're the ones who haven't dug in deep enough. We're the ones who need to have our hearts conformed to scripture rather than trying to take scripture and bend it around our lives. Or we come to the Bible and we say, you know, I'm going to listen to you, God. Just don't pay attention to that. You know, don't, touch, don't touch my free time. You know, I have this sin I really like coddling over here. Don't, don't, don't touch that. Or, or this problem. Or I don't want to hear how, what you want to say to me about, about this issue or that issue. I think this even points to the fact that the right application of scripture is never really, it's not always intellectual, is it? It is moral. Conformity to scripture and acceptance of scripture is a matter of the heart. We need God's spirit and regenerated hearts in order to understand it and apply it. We can't do this by ourselves. Our sin will blind us to God's word. But thanks be to God that God's word is not only direct or complete, but it's also personal. Third, we persevere or we have confidence in God's word knowing that he has spoken to us personally. Go back to your text real quick. Long ago at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. It's common in the Old Testament to see God address his people through prophetic mediators, right? Moses is kind of the clearest example of that. Moses and Aaron were the mouthpiece of God to the people of Israel and to the Egyptians. Exodus 4.15. What's the problem, though? What's the problem with prophets? It's, it's hard to always know who's a good guy and who's a bad guy. You know, in the nation of Israel, there are tons of prophets. There are a lot of false prophets leading people into sin. The kings, though, it's always funny. The kings, they gather around themselves prophets. Like, I want to support what I'm doing. But I want the guys who are telling me the stuff that I want to hear, not not really what, like, what God wants to tell me. Ahaz is a fun example of that. We, we never do that. We never gather around people who only tell us what we want to hear. We want to avoid those who don't want to tell us what we want to hear. That's the first problem. We really don't know who's a true prophet and a, and a bad prophet. It, it, it always is confirmed by whose word comes to be true. So if someone speaks and it doesn't happen, then they're not really a true prophet. But in the moment, it's kind of difficult always to see who's true and who's, who's false. Second, you have a sinful people speaking on behalf of a holy God, which is just complicated. Think of Moses. He gives people his law, land of promise, but he's himself disqualified. He can't go in. All the messengers of the Old Testament were themselves fallen. And the message they proclaimed of hope and of salvation was one they needed. And that's significant. The fact that for us, God has given us his message, not by a prophet, but who? By who? By his son. The eternal second person of the Trinity comes, takes on human flesh, right? Why ought we to believe Christ's words? Because he has banked his life upon it. He preached the message of repentance in the coming kingdom of God. And what did he do to confirm it? Lay down his 
life. To confirm that God's word is true and that we need a savior. What did God do in return? He vindicated Jesus, said all that he said was true as a prophet, by raising him from the dead. And then Jesus comes to us as the God-man to give us this message of grace that anyone who repents of their sins can come to him and have eternal life. The message is personal because God himself gives it to us. He came in the flesh, gave it to us. And not only is it personal, like he's here in the flesh. Think about that. Jesus forever bound himself to human nature so that we would get this message. But it came at a cost, right? God so loved the world that what? Gave his only son. Think about these things. Jesus, whenever he made, whenever in God's eternal plan, he took on flesh. He was forever binding himself to human nature that we might get this message. Or he humbled himself and went to a cross to confirm it. How does he prove his word to Thomas that he was raised from the dead? Put your fingers here, Thomas. Put your hand on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. What does he also do? He gives us spiritual life, that we understand his word and follow him in obedience. And when we fail to obey God's word and we struggle with sin and temptation, what does he do? He gives us his righteousness and takes our sin, us, doubting, wavering, struggling sinners, are seen in God's sight as righteous because of his son. Nothing, and I say nothing, that happens in your life will challenge the lengths which God has gone to give you his word and to prove its truthfulness. He gave you his son that you would believe in him. And we ought to also acknowledge that we have a responsibility as his people to bear personal witness to his word, right? If you're a Christian, if you're a member of this church, you are a witness to God. We are the ones who have his word, right? We represent God. When I am standing in this pulpit, God has sent us as a church and us as preachers to proclaim his good news. And if we have the ultimate privilege of speaking on behalf of God, we ought to strive for holiness and devotedness to him. While every person struggles with sin, we can't be like the Old Testament prophets, right? We have to be those who are regenerated and striving towards holiness. There are many people who are Christians who, this is, this is difficult, that we have to just be mindful of the fact that as God's witness on the earth, that we are called to be a holy witness, those whose lives mark their confession. And so it's difficult for us to just look around and say there's a lot of people who are Christians in name only and their lives don't match what's happened. How damaging is it when a pastor's life blows up in scandal and people who have been under his ministry for years, for someone who came and gave them God's word decade after decade, Sunday after Sunday, it's like nothing really happened, right? It's like none of it, none of it was real. None of it mattered. How damaging is it is for those who, who say to speak on behalf of God and their lives blow up? Why is, why is that damaging? Why is that so spiritually damaging? Because one who speaks on behalf of God is completely caught contradicting it in their life. So if you and I want to bear good witness to Christ in the world, we have to count the cost, right? It means conforming our lives to him. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean perfection. Um, 
but it means the sacrifice, devotedness, pursuing of holiness, that we might be worthy vessels of the message into the world. So as, a, as we come to a close, I want us to re, re, let's revisit the introduction. Why would the author begin with this? In the face of these Jewish Christians wanting to revert back to Judaism, in the face of the trials and testings that want to undermine their trust in, in God's word, why start with the fact that God spoke? Because getting to the issue of the authority and sufficiency of Scripture cuts to the heart of the matter for us. Because from the beginning, Satan's favorite tactic is to cause us or to cause us to distrust God's word. Did God really say? And if we have a faulty view of God, if you do not hold to its directness towards you, its completeness in what he has said and how he has confirmed it personally, at some point in your life, it's going to impact every other aspect of your spiritual faith. If you don't have a solid view that God has spoken to you by his word, that is sufficient for your life, that it is the final revelation, that it is personally given to you and completely direct. If you don't have that view, how can you long-term sustain any trust in it? Your house is like the man spoken in Matthew 7. It's built upon sand and it will fall. But also for others of you, if you find yourself in a situation where you're troubled and you're in trials, testing, because there's great comfort. Because on the flip side of that, if you trust God's word, there's nothing in heaven and on earth that can come against it. Because as long as that tomb stays empty, God's promises hold true. I promise you, whatever happens in this life, whatever storm literally comes our way, when we face death, nothing will separate us from these promises, right? From the love that God has given to us in Christ. I want, I want us to be a church that can confess sincerely with the words of the great hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say to, than to you he hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What's, what's that last question? Did you catch that? What more can he say? What more can he say? Nothing. Because God has spoken to us directly, completely, and personally. And that's all that we need. Let us pray.